Good morning. Well, today we continue on in 1 Timothy. And you know what I've discovered about 1 Timothy is it's a challenging book. And I think, excuse me, I think Mark has done a great job of navigating some of the challenging texts. And this morning, as it were, as God in his providence would have it, it's another challenging text. And it deals with, of all things, money. And... I, so what I did was what all good pastors do if they're going to preach a sermon is you go online to the internet, not sure how we ever preached before the internet, and, and then do some, you know, research. So I went and I researched and I found, assuming the internet is right, which we all assume, that our country, the United States of America, is $15.6 trillion in debt, which is more money than I have, frankly. <laughs> it's more lead than my pencil is able to write the number of zeros to get to 15.6 trillion. And then I found that's the national debt. That's what our government owes. Terrible government, you know. And yet as personal people, that's what we are. We're people and we're personal. We have 15.9 trillion. You know, it's the race. Who can owe more, the government or us? And and then somebody did the math and it's like 138,000 plus dollars for everyone that pays taxes, everyone that has the ability to pay at all, they pay money, that would be what that amount equals. We've got a major, th- there's no shock there, is it? We've got a major money problem in the United States, and I'm convinced of this. The problem isn't we don't have enough money. We're like the richest country ever by who knows how many times. The problem is probably multifaceted. I'm sure there's several aspects to it. But at the core of it, or at least a very significant part of it, has to do with this issue of contentment. We're not a content people. We're out to find contentment in various different ways. And one of the major ways we try to find contentment is with money. And therefore, if you're not content, you try money to find contentment. And here's what you'll find. And we've all found it. It doesn't work, but we do it anyway. And Paul's going to deal with exactly that issue this morning. There's two basic sections to the passage. The first one is going to be like the encouraging part of the sermon, how to be content. And Paul has three very nice little points. They're very concise. They're, they're very easy to follow. Not all that easy to do, but they are a formula, as it were, for contentment. And then the second half of the sermon, he pulls a hammer out. So hang on. If you want to go to the bathroom, you might want to do it before verses 9 and 10. And just stay there. Because he's going to pull the hammer out and he's going to say there are some very significant problems with money. And frankly, they're problems that most of us on some level have dealt with. And watch out because Paul's going to get in our face. So that's what we're going to look at. So let's start off with contentment. You know, do you, do you want to be content? I mean, that's a word that to me, as I think about it, it's a huge word and it's one that we all desire and then we ask the question, how do we accomplish that? Well, what, watch what Paul says. And he gives what I, what I think is the first of three elements to contentment. And the first one is this, to be truly godly. Look at verse 6. And by the way, and, and this is my true confession, I wrote the, uh, the manuscript. So if you've got it in your hands, I wrote it. And I'm also going to tell you that I'm not the best at preaching from a manuscript. So if you're going to try to follow that and what I say, this isn't a, a theological word, but good luck with that. Uh, <clears throat> Now, the basic outline is in there, but you might be better off following the text. That's my, you know, watch the Bible. Look at verse 6. It says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. It's one clause, one sentence, as it were. Really simple, especially for Paul. (laughs) If you study Paul much, you know he knows how to be complex when he writes sentences. Here's a really simple one. He says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And College Park, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. There is. 
so we can end the sermon. But when you're preaching, you can't end a sermon that soon. So you've got to go after it. And let me give you a little bit of the background. Let me flesh it out a little bit. It's in a context, and Mark dealt with the context last week in the first part of 1 Timothy 6. He talked about in verse 4, those people, you know, all those people that are puffed up with conceit, those proud people. We have seen those people and they are us, you know. And then some of those people that are so proud and arrogant are so proud and arrogant that at the end of verse 5, they imagine that godliness, that being godly, is a means of gain. That you could make money, you could financially succeed if you put on this facade of religiosity or the facade of, of, uh, of godliness, and, and it's almost as though Paul is saying, what could be more abhorrent than that, that someone takes this godliness nuance and tries to make gain from it? So then he comes to verse 6, and frankly, I think the first word in verse 6 could be translated, but. Not just because I like that word, but because it's a contrastive word, and the word could be translated that. In my translation, it says now, let me include but. But, but in contrast to those who are trying to make money out of their, quote, godliness, He says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Or I remember learning that in the King James, and some of you go back that far. Godliness with contentment is great gain. To which the people of God always say, amen. Yeah, sure it is. So so what is it? The word contentment is an interesting word. It's not used often in the New Testament. Paul uses it twice in in these three verses about contentment. It's a word that's used a lot in secular Greek, classical Greek. It's used by the Stoics. And if you remember in your history classes, you know, you had those Stoic guys. And it's even come into our language. The ones that have that stiff upper lip, you know, that they say, no matter what comes, I'm going to just endure. I'm going to be. And content was the word they would use because of their internal stamina. You know, you can, you can just suck it up. You can do it. You can do it. You can be content or you can be Stoic. And and Paul flips it around and he says, no, no, contentment is not something that you conjure up within yourself. Contentment that comes to you, not from your outward circumstances, not from your inward stability. It comes from godliness. It comes from having a perspective that's outside of this world and it's in that world. And and then he goes to the word godly, which is another interesting word. That, again, in the previous verse, godliness was a facade that they put on. We're going to pretend like we're godly. We're going, to, we're going to do what godly people do. And they didn't have that heart of godliness at all. And now Paul is saying this. You want to be content. You want to have that contentment that comes external to yourself. It's not conjured up by yourself. Then here's how you do it. You get your view off of yourself and off of the stuff of the world. And you get your view toward God. You have a perspective of God. God becomes the center of life. God becomes your all in all. And that's the nuance of godliness that I think he's fleshing out in this text. And, you know, I, in the last year, year and a half, I've gotten really, really excited and enamored with a, with, with a, 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 a category of Bible study that's called biblical theology, and it tries to look at the Bible as a whole. What's the whole picture of the Bible? And Pastor Mark has done this in several sermons, and I want to give you a little biblical theology lesson here. And, and what it really is, is a definition of godliness. And I'm here to tell you that if you want to be content, you better start with your view of God before you start with your view of money. If you think, I'm going to be content because I win the lottery, I'm here to tell you, you're going to be content if you're a child of Jesus Christ and he's your treasure. I don't care. As a matter of fact, probably winning the lottery will deter you from being content. And knowing Jesus will only increase your contentment. It's your understanding of what God is doing. And here's the big picture of what God's doing. Let me tell you what godliness looks like. It starts off in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God 
was content. Well, it doesn't say that, but I'm here to tell you, God did not create out of discontentment. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, was totally satisfied with who he was. <laughs> he had a really good self-image, you know. He did. It was like he had all he needed. He was full and complete in and of himself. And then that God chose to create the heavens and the earth. And then it's described in Genesis 1 in glorious fashion. It ends with this, that so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. He said, I'm going to stamp my image on this creation that I've had. And that image is going to be humans, male, female humans, that will reflect my glory. And... And then then you say, verse 28 in Genesis 1 is a verse that has fairly recently really struck me because I read a guy who brought it to light for me. This human couple, male and female, they were told by God to be fruitful and multiply. And you want to know what that looks like? Go look at our nursery. We just built a bigger one because we got a boatload of fruitful, multiplied things. (laughs) And you know what I say? Go for it and keep it up because that's what God called us to do. And it's a beautiful thing. Here's the part that I didn't hear quite so well. That part, yeah, okay, let's get a boatload of kids. That's a good thing. But then he said, and fill the earth. And, and then you say, Phil, is that just a matter of let's get as many people and cram them on earth as possible? Here's what he meant by that. Here's the intent that God had. And that is to his image, after he created to his image, he said, here's what my mission is for this world, and I want you to adopt my mission. That's what God says. And his mission was articulated in Habakkuk, of all books. Habakkuk chapter 2, and it says this, that the mission of God is that the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth like the water covers the sea. And it chokes me up a little bit because that's become my favorite verse, and I've convinced my wife that that's her favorite verse. And actually, it didn't take much convincing. And, you know, those are the kind of women you want to marry. Their favorite verse is your favorite verse, or it can become that. And if you're a woman, you ought to marry a man like that. Because here's what God had. Here's the big picture. The big picture is we exist in order that the glory of the almighty, triune, content God would cover the earth like the water covers the sea. And you know how the water covers the sea? That's what it is. I mean, when you you go out to sea, it's water. It's water covers it totally. And the idea is the immersion of the entire cosmos in the glory of God. I say that, I feel like I ought to be a Puritan. You know, it's like that preaches. And yet do we live that? That's why you exist. You're only going to be content when you find that your ultimate treasure and purpose is that you are one of those creatures of God in whom the glory of that God covers the earth like the water covers the sea. In a couple chapters, sin comes into the world. And the story just radically changes. And here's how Paul defines sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? It's defined in terms of God's glory. So when you sin and you think, you know, hey, it's a victimless crime, you know what? It's a God-glorifying, defeating crime or sin. That's what you do. That's what you do. That's why sin is so abhorrent. And the rest of the Bible is a glorious picture of a redeeming God who could have set a flood, put him on the ark, pulled the plug, they all died, and he would have been righteous in doing that. And instead of that, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ came to humanity, and it came in the form of God taking on flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here's the significant events of human history. They are the events that define your life and my life, and they define all of human history. And that was that day when Jesus Christ went on a cross, 
And he went on the cross and he died. And he died to defeat evil, to defeat death. And he died bearing your sin in his body on the tree so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Sin being what doesn't allow you to experience contentment and to be full in Christ and what he created you to be. And then you know what? The story doesn't end there. Because the two pinnacle events are he died and then he rose again. Man, you could preach a whole sermon like you could preach your whole life on resurrection life. This Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins, took care of the problem, also came to resolve this redemptive plight of sin. And he then offers life to his church, to his people. And life is such that then we together, College Park Church, we have a mission. Our mission is this. Get out there, get busy, go to the the, the areas within Indianapolis, the areas within Indiana, the areas within The United States, the areas all around the world, so the glory of God covers the earth like the water covers the seas. That's your mission. That's my mission. You know what? There's no better mission. And you know what? You're not going to be content until you understand what it means to live godly. And living godly is to say that God in Jesus Christ is my treasure. He's all I need. You know, you do need money to function in the world. I understand that. That's a small end. Your big end need is this. I need to be rightly related to him. And then I need to be uh, about the mission that he's about. My treasure, all I need is Jesus Christ. And and that sounds kind of Christianese, doesn't it? And I tell you what, that is real ease. That's what life is all about. That's the big picture. And if you want to be content, then you better come to grips with what this godliness means. And if you're here this morning and you just kind of came to church and we're glad you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your redeemer, savior and king, then today is the day where you come to him and say, Lord, I was created to be content and I'll be content only when I find my contentment in you. And I trust in you as my Savior. And then for those of us that are, you know what? We ought to be people. We ought to be a church of content people because of our God. Not because of our bank account. Not because everything goes smooth in life. It's because we got the God who really sits enthroned. And the last part of this picture is going to be he's coming back. And his coming back isn't just, you know what? It's time that I came back. I just got the ghost. The coming back, a good word for that is consummation. He's going to finish. It's actually the, it's actually the end that leads to the beginning. Because you see, there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. And I'm here to tell you, the new heaven and new earth are going to be that in which the glory of God covers the heavens and the earth like the water covers the sea. And I want to be there. I want to be there. And you know what? There's a sense in which that glory of God exists now within the church of Jesus Christ. That it isn't just a out there somewhere. It's an already today that we ought to be able to experience that level of contentment when our perspective is godly. Here's the verse I want to conclude this point with. Paul said this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Then Nobody ever answers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is though he was rich, yet for our sake, for your sake, he became poor, that we through his poverty might be paupers. That, that doesn't translate that Greek word very well. That we through his poverty might be rich beyond your wildest imagination because Jesus Christ died and rose again. So if you want to be content, and my heart really goes out on this point. If you want to be content, it starts with our view of God. It doesn't start with our view of our money, our bank account, or anything else. And if we are content in Christ, and if he is truly our treasure, that doesn't mean life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be challenges because there certainly are. But... He is our all in all. So element number one of contentment is to be truly godly. 
Now, that's a mouthful in and of itself. Element number two that Paul mentions is in verse seven, and, and it is this. I've defined it as having an eternal perspective on life. And again, Paul is very to the point. He's very almost abrupt and maybe is quoting Job or, or at least some sort of a proverbial statement that nobody's going to disagree with. In verse seven, he says this, for we brought nothing that's contemporary English, into this world, and we're not going to take nothing out of the world, which is a bad double negative and whatever else, English teachers. Or in a more sophisticated way, we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. And you know what? That's true. That is true. I've got a couple grandkids, just in case you didn't know. And even if you did know, it doesn't hurt you to be reminded, frankly. Um, and they, one of them's a little over two, one of them's a little over one. I wasn't there when they were born. All the reports I got, and I saw them a couple days after they were born, they brought nothing into the world, nothing in their hands. They, it was hard to get both of them to come into the world for which you want to smack them afterward and say, come on, got to make it easier than that. They came into the world. They brought nothing into the world. And and here's the amazing thing. I'm, I'm just learning this grandparenting thing. And that is, it's amazing to me how someone who has nothing, they, they don't, they got nothing. And I'm so incredibly attracted to them. <laughs> it's like, I love these kids and they got nothing. Come on. They brought nothing into the world. So then here's what grandparents tend to do. They tend to convince them of all the things that they need that they didn't have. So we then just overflow them. I'm not sure we do them a service totally. So for my grandson, my two-year-old, he's two years old after all, two years. He's well along in years. So I bring him a soccer ball, a nice little red soccer ball, number three soccer ball. Could have been a football, you know, same thing. So I say, all right, all right, it's time you learn soccer. You need to learn soccer. And so then I showed him with depth skill exactly what that looked like. He comes up, said, still, okay, it's your turn now. He comes up, picks up the soccer ball, throws it and goes and jumps in a mud puddle. And I'm like, come on. Don't you understand how important this stuff of life is? And I think... He doesn't understand, and maybe he understands more than I understand. He brought nothing into the world. And then I remember several years ago, my dad died. He died young. The older I get, the more I'm convinced of that. And one of the hard things about when someone dies and you're closely related to them is you got to take their clothes. And I, I got the job of going into his closet, and my dad was a huge man and wasn't particularly stylish. And I didn't know of anybody that would particularly be interested in his clothes. But as I looked at his clothes and took them and put them into bags to take them to Goodwill and who knows what happened to them after that, they became, in my mind, sort of a part. You know, it's, I remember him wearing that shirt. I remember what we were doing. And you've, a lot of you have experienced that. It's gut-wrenching. And then my theological mind kicked in and said, man, but whatever he's wearing now is a ton better than that because whatever you wear today, tomorrow, any day of your life, it's not going with you. It's not. And that's not a shock. You know that. We pretend like that's not true. We just kind of go on thinking, let me get some really cool stuff. Yeah, I know they're going to throw it away someday, but oh well, for today, it'll be okay. Maybe I'll be content. You will not be content if you buy your clothes and your cars and your houses with the idea that that will bring you ultimate contentment. You will be content when you understand who God is and you treasure Jesus and then you have an eternal perspective and you understand that today is not what it's all about That day is what it's all about. You know what? We gather together on Sundays to remind ourselves of that because you're going to go out of here and some of you are going to watch the NBA playoffs, maybe. 
Or some of you are going to watch whatever it is that you're going to watch and you're going to see this car will make you content. You're going to see this credit card will suddenly be your entrance into the almost celestial city. It feels like that's the kind of promises they make. And the fact is they are, and here's the correct word, they are all lies. The only true reality is that an eternal perspective will allow you to be content in a world where discontentment reigns and rules the day. So you want to be content? Understand godliness. You want to be content, get an eternal perspective. And then look at the third part of contentment. Let's have a proper view of expectations. We're expectation-filled people. (laughs) We think we deserve. We're entitlement people. Even the best of us who don't think we're entitlement people, we tend to be. I expect to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if I'm not, I tend not to be very content if I'm not pretty full on all of those and probably a number of other things. Well, look, look how Paul describes it. And again, these are really three very short statements that have an incredible amount of punch to them. Look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, I didn't do a full scan of everybody here, but I'm pretty sure everybody's got clothing. Because if you didn't, I'm pretty sure you would be the one person with everybody sitting far away from you. And none of you look like that just doesn't work. you got clothes. Maybe it's your only set of clothes. My guess is it's not. And I'm looking at most of our waistlines, and I think there's some very fit people out there. Praise God for you people, sort of. And then <laughs> there are some that make it very obvious that you've got more than enough food. We all make that obvious, don't we? And I think the, I think the, the idea is it's, it's kind of a bigger deal. It's saying if you have your needs, you have the basic needs of life, the necessities of life. So if you see, you see what it says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Will you? I'm not so sure that that really contents me. I mean, if I have enough clothes and then I get to get the next set of clothes, if I got enough shoes and then I get that new shoes, you know, if I, and, and it's just, isn't that what life is? I, I heard a sermon by, by Tim Keller talking about this. And he talked about greed. You know, at different stages of life, you progress or digress. I remember as a younger person, I didn't care what clothes I wore. I mean, it's great. My brother and I are both, we're brothers, you know, and so we're two boys. We're about a year apart, a little over, and we didn't care what we wore when we were young. It was great. Life was good. You know, whatever's there, you put it on. If you wear it 10 days in a row, it's like, I can do it 11. I, I don't even think of that. <laughs> and fortunately, you have mothers that are more rational, etc. but not, not, more, not more content. We we're pretty content. Then we had our own other issues. Here's what he says, and I think it's the right way to look at it. He says that if you want to be content, then what we need to do is reduce our expectations. And the older we get, the harder that is to do. And it starts really, really young of mine, mine, mine. I want that. And, and yes, little kid, why do you want that? There's no reason for them to want that. And then I ask my adult self when I look in the mirror, why do I want that? And the fact is, there's no reason that I want that. It's just I want that. And it's a formula for discontentment. This week, several of us, uh, we have some residents, some young guys that I just love. And I work with them quite a bit. We've got two of them. And there's actually three of us that are together. We had a fourth guy that was a part of this resident program. Um, and they all were working in the church, planning to get into ministry somewhere. His name was Derek Joseph. And some of you know Derek and Lacey. And they went over to East Asia, China. Oh, but you're not allowed to say it. Anyway, they went over there. It's okay to say it. And they've been over there for a couple months, and so we Skyped him this Thursday. And it was fun. You know, we started off with the guy kind of, you know, sort of that humor stuff. And Derek's got a great sense of humor. He's just a hilarious guy. And then we got part of the way through it, and he said, you know, actually, it's kind of tough over here. And so we're like, ah, the, well, we don't want to talk about that. Let's, the connection's not very good. Sorry. 
you know, because who wants to talk about tough stuff? And he said, actually, it's not that tough. We've got a nice house. We've got plenty to eat. We've even got a wall air conditioner. He said, but, you know, we go outside and nobody speaks English. So we're pointing at things. And I don't know if you've ever been in those kind of contexts. That's fun for a day or two. And then it just gets really old. They can't use their credit card. They have to have cash. And, you know, just those things that we expect that are so easy. And somebody said, so, so when are you going to come back and visit? You know, we'd like to see you. And, and Derek said, well, I may be back this summer. I've got a wedding. He said, but we've decided that we can't come back to the United States for any extended period of time in the near future. Because if we do, we're not going to go back to China. And I'm sitting there, okay, you're not going to, wait a minute, that's why you went. That's what you're doing. And what he was saying was, it won't take long to feed our expectations so that we don't want to go back to a place that doesn't feed our expectations. And I also said, I mean, I was on my knees this week and we ought to be praying for our missionaries because, man, apart from the grace of God, wouldn't they all do that? Wouldn't you do that? You want to be content? Here's what Martin Luther would say. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That's who God is. And then then at the end he says, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It's easy to sing that song, but when you say let goods go, kindred go, not so sure about that. You want to be content? Understand godliness. God is our treasure. Understand there's an eternal perspective of life. And then understand that we need to reduce our expectations so that they become expectations of the kingdom of God and not expectations of our own self-promotion. And I can tell you, whether it's money is your issue or maybe you have other issues, you'd say money's not mine. I'm going to tell you, if you want to be content, it's the same formula. It's the same. All right, now we get to move into the last two verses, fun and games. Paul then is going to get in our face and he's going to get in our face and he's going to say, now, now, now you you want to be content. And that's a good thing. There's the upside. Here's the downside. The downside is money is an incredibly and it's, it's a devious and it's out to get you. And if you're not careful, it will snag you and snare you and kill you. Be warmed and filled. So look at the first warning that he gives has to do in verse 9 with the desire to be rich. And here's how Paul describes it. He said, but those who desire to be rich. And I think that the word desire is going to be slightly contrasted to the word love, which is going to be in verse 10 for the love of money. It's almost like that desire is I don't quite have it, but I want it. It's out there and I want to get it. I want to win the lottery. I mean, would you like to win the lottery today? I mean, we all fantasize winning the lottery, don't we? And, and then we'll tithe. You always want to put that in. 20%, God. 30, how about that? Come on. And, and we'll do those bartering things. And maybe you don't do it with the lottery. Maybe that isn't your issue. But we do barter with God on occasion. That desire for something that we don't have. In this case, Paul uses the illustration of money. Those that desire to be rich, not just have money, to be rich. And the sense is, it isn't desire to be rich in order to use it for the kingdom. It's desire is the problem. It's the heart that's the problem. It's that lust they desire. Now look what happens. But it says, those who desire to be rich. And then I think there's a sequence that goes on, I think. They fall into temptation. 
So if you've got a heart that desires to be rich, you're going to fall into temptation. The word for temptation could be lure. It's kind of like, and I never understand why fish go after lures, because I'm not a fisherman. seems pretty stupid. And yet I don't know how big a fish brain is, you know, so maybe they're not known for their brilliance, because they go after these things, they bite them, and then they're caught. So it's a lure that turns into a snare, which is maybe a little bit older English. It turns into a trap. You know, you're lured in and then poof, then you're trapped. And then and then it goes into many senseless and harmless or excuse me, harmful. There's a radical difference between harmless and harmful. Harmful desires, and some of us have been there, where it's almost irrational our desire to get, to have, to go after, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's the end of it, ruin and destruction. They're plunged in. And again, I'm sure there have been times in my life when I've wanted so much this idea of whatever the idea was of being, being rich or having what riches can procure, and I find myself in terrible, awful straits. <laughs> right? On occasion, like to use visual aids that I hope are helpful, and some people have told me they are, and other people just don't say anything, which is all right. But as I was looking at this text, it just seemed to beg some sort of a a visual aid. And so I went to the store, spared no expense. I didn't act rich, but I got one of these. Can you see that? Let me see if you can see that. Yeah, there it is. You know what that is? Rat, I like that. I thought it was a mouse trap. And because I used to get mice traps, I mean, my parents did, and they were like a quarter that size. I looked at that and I thought, man, that looks like a cat trap or something. It's huge. But like I said, I spared no expense. I got it. I'll call it, you can call it whatever you want. It's a trap in any case. And you see, here's the picture. The picture is you have this desire. And, and you know, maybe the desire is that really cool car that you saw on the internet. I mean, the internet, the internet will lead you down a lot of paths, won't it? Some good paths, not so good paths. We already know it leads us down toward, you know, sexual immorality. It also leads us down toward this desire to be rich. So there it is, whether it's a car or maybe it's clothes, you know, like this just, man, I got to have that dress. I I don't have to have that dress, but I mean, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Whatever it is, and there it is, and it's just like you're, you're, and, and, and so here's what happens. You see, there's, there's that lure, and then the lure, and, and here's what you don't see, because one of the things that makes traps work is you don't see them. I don't know how a mouse can miss that, but some of them do. I don't know how I miss some of the traps that I fall into either. And so you see what happens. There's the lure. It's there. The trap is being set. And so you come, you know, just like the mouse goes up. By the way, one of the ways you can do traps, too, is if you have one of these. If you have one of these, those are the things that when you desire to be rich, make you think you're rich. And the fact is, all you got is plastic. It's a piece of plastic. It's not money. But you get it. It comes in here. It's like, ha, you can get that. Ha, ha. You can get that. See, there it is. So the trap comes. And be sure to keep my fingers out of here. Trap comes. And, and there it goes, and then all of a sudden, it just seems so cool, and it's just that cheese tastes so good, that car is so nice, and it's just, and you're caught. And you see how Paul describes it? That you're caught in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge to ruin and destruction just because of that lure that sucked you in and trapped you. And there you are. So if you want to be discontent, 
Here's what you do. You start off with rather than Jesus is my treasure, he's my all in all, your eyes start to move around and you see, no, if I, oh, man, oh, that, yeah, wow, I wish I had what it took to get that and I'm going to figure out how to get that and when I get it, I think I'll be content and I think I'll be satisfied. And here's the horror of sin and that is it's an incredible liar and it never produces so you get the car, you get the house, you get the, you fill in the blank, whatever it is, and you find out, wow, it seems so cool and it wears out so fast and it just doesn't produce and it doesn't give what's promised. And not only that, but now here I am in destruction. Well, let me just go at the last point because in my mind, it's even more graphic here in verse 10. And this warning, I think, is the love of money. And he, the word he uses for love you know, the New Testament word that Paul likes to use for love when it's in a kind of a Christian context, love is patient, love is, it's the word agape, and most of you probably, some of you have heard of that probably. This is another word, and I think maybe intentionally Paul uses another word that could be a parallel or a synonym for, for agape, but it's phileo, you know, Philadelphia, it's that other word. And I, but I still think it's intense. I think it has that love relationship. I, but I think it's more in this context, intense like love for a mistress. It's like the intensity of a love for, and I think the right way to look at this would be a false God. We're to love God and love God only. But here's what idol worship is. We decide we're going to love something else like money. Or maybe in your case, it's I love fame and fortune. I like people pat me on the back. Or, 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 or maybe it's, or maybe it's just that lust of I want, I like relationships or I like even immoral relationships. Whatever it is, in this case, it's that love, that seductive love that causes you to say, this is my lover and What it also says is Christ is, and he's not good enough. The love of money, it doesn't say money's wrong, it says the love of money is a root, which I think is a correct translation, of all kinds of evil. It leads to evil of many and varied sorts. It leads to people who become workaholics, people who say, my family doesn't really matter, that priority is not that big a deal, because I'm after what I love. You know, we are after what we love. The question is, what do you love? And the world's going to tell you the sense that you would love Jesus as the ultimate treasure of your life, that's not good enough. The fact is, they're lying to you because Jesus is good enough. But here's what happens the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. Now, listen to this. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. That's how dire it is. I mean, they've wandered and said, there's Jesus. My faith is found a resting place, and it's in Jesus Christ. And I'm just, uh, here, here I go. I'm going away from it. The horror is this, that if you walk away from the faith, you're walking to hell. That's where you're walking. And if you think hell is just that thing eternally, it certainly is that, but it's even more than that. It's that... Reality of God's not God, and that is hell. And they've pierced themselves, and that pierce is the word. It's like impaled. It's like they've stabbed themselves with a spear. They've impaled themselves with many pains. The love of money will do that. When I thought of this, I was going to use a video clip, and I decided not to because I thought it might be too graphic, but one of my favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings. Because if you watch the movie, you don't have to read the book. But don't tell my wife that. <laughs> it's not very sophisticated. 
read the book and don't watch the movie. Well, anyway, one of the characters I like in, in, is, is Gollum. I don't like Gollum. I'm sorry. One of the most memorable characters is Gollum. And you know Gollum is that he's kind of, and he, he's got hardly, and he's just, he looks horrible. And then you, you, you run into him and you know he, he can't, it's just something's wrong with this guy. And then, they, then somewhere it tells you the backstory that he used to be Smeagol, remember, and in the book, he's kind of just a regular guy in their fictional world. And then he gets obsessed with this ring. And, and, and I'm still kind of trying to figure out exactly what the ring is. It must be some sort of metaphor, allegory, for something that can take total possession of you and make you do really weird things like, like kill people and like be willing to die for it because you're so obsessed with it. And you remember when he looks at that ring and he has this classic line. He says, <clears throat> my precious... Nah, that wasn't perfect, but it's, it's that, and you know, when you're watching it, it's almost as though you can engage in it and say, he has done what the, Paul talks about. It's that love of, this is his seductress. This is the thing that's taken capture of him. This is his treasure. This is all that matters. And in the end, he burns for the want of the ring. Now we have people in College Park, and not everybody, but enough of us on some level that our love reality is brought into question when money is hung out there. And, and some of us have that tendency to say, my precious, my precious. And here's what we ought to be saying. Jesus Christ is my precious. He's all I need. And some of us haven't. And here's what happens, that you start that process of walking away from the faith and you pierce, you impale yourselves with many sorrows. You know, Jesus gave an illustration of that that's incredibly sobering. The rich ruler, you remember the story. This guy comes up to Jesus and said, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Good question. You ask the right guy, you got the right question. He said, keep the law. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I would have said something different than that. But anyway, he said, keep the law. And so the guy said, done it, check, since I was a kid. Jesus doesn't argue with him. Fact is, he didn't. But still, he was probably a really good, godly guy. Quote, Jesus said this, go sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. And I'm not standing up here preaching to you to say, today go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Although I do think we ought to give to the poor. I also think that we ought to be really careful with our money. It's not ours, it's his. But I think what he was saying was, where's your heart, man? And he understood and looked into his heart and said, your God, your mistress, is your money. And until you get rid of that God and that mistress, I will not be your bridegroom. I will not be your God. And you can, in essence, or you will, go to hell. And and you know how the story ends. You want to hear the story ending. He fell on his knees and repented. And the story ends. The guy sobbed a couple tears. And I think the inference is he walked away and he was sorrowful because he had great wealth because his precious was more precious than his Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, none of us would say we're like him, right? But on some level, I've been working on this sermon for a while. And my wife and I both talked and she said, all right, so how are we going to respond to this? And I'm like, we have to respond. And I'm not exactly sure what the response is, but I know this. I got to get as far away from allowing money or anything else in my life to be my God other than the one who is the treasure, the one in whom all riches are had. And that is Jesus Christ. He's the one that's got to be exalted in our life. We got to work at what that means. And so let me just close with a couple of takeaways. So what do you do? Here's the first thing you ought to do. And you ought to do it today, because if you don't do it today, these kind of sermons don't work tomorrow. They don't. They work today. 
today while it is today. And you ought to go home and you ought to do like a contentment check. One, I'm content. Five, or one, I'm not content. Five, I am content. And where are you in the middle? And then ask yourself the question, so why? And as a matter of fact, then you ought to do a heart check and say, what is my real treasure? Is it Jesus or is it fill in the blank with whatever else it would be? Because you see, the real issue isn't money. It isn't your checking account. It isn't your 401k. It's your God. That's the real issue. It's your heart. So go home and do a heart check. And then, you know, sometimes we can do that really piously and say, you know what, check. I, Jesus is my treasure. Got it. See you later. I don't want to think about this stuff. It's too heavy for me. Let me just live. There's some certain things that you ought to do. Like, and I put a couple of these in what I thought were clever and maybe they're not. You ought to do some budget busting this afternoon. You ought to go home and you ought to look at your budget. That assumes you have a budget. And I've talked to enough people to know that a lot of people don't have budgets. And there's probably various reasons. And I don't think budgets are magic, but you know what they are? They're one way of saying, I'm going to be intentional in what I do with what God's given me. Again, I'm not saying you have to have a budget, but you know what? You ought to go home. If you don't have a budget, then you ought to say, how have I spent my money this last month? How am I going to spend it next month? You say, well, I'll wait till next month. I think not. Here's what, you know what what my biggest budget item problem is? It's the miscellaneous line. You know, it's like whatever I want to do and I don't want to acknowledge that I've done it, it goes under miscellaneous. And if I took miscellaneous and it went to local outreach or went to global outreach, and I'm not saying it's more spiritual to do that than feed your kids. You know what? You have, you need to feed your kids. That's an incredibly important part of God's kingdom. But God's kingdom is that his glory would cover the earth like the water covers the sea and he gives us resources to make that happen. So maybe you need to do some budget busting. And by the way, for those that maybe aren't into, you know, like, man, I know I struggle with money. We've got people at College Park. We've got nine of them because I checked it this week who are ready and gifted and able to help people with financial situations. You can go online and you can say, you know what? I've just always struggled with money. Could somebody please help me? And the answer is yes, they can. And they'll help your perspective of how to get content. That's at the heart of it. And then they can give you practical suggestions. We ought to do some trap trashing. There's a lot of these around your house. Maybe it's your internet. Maybe it's your magazines you get. Maybe it's the TV shows you watch. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is, and it's the Lord that's out there saying, come, there you are. You ought to start ripping those out and getting them out of there. (laughs) There ought to be that radical sense of, okay, I've been caught in that trap one time too many. I'm not going to be caught again. This guy after the first service said he's going to go buy some of these mouse traps and put them right next to it. So when you go up to the TV and that commercial comes on, go that. Say, that's what I get if I'm not careful. Then you ought to do some generous giving, right? Budget busting, trash, trap trashing, generous giving. Man, there are so many opportunities. This year, our Christmas offering is going to go to local outreach. You'll see, you can see the the, the partners that we have. God's been incredibly gracious to give us ample opportunity where we, as a church of Jesus Christ, in building this building, the purpose of this building was that through this building and these people, that's us, the glory of God can cover the earth like the water covers the sea. And that's how you can be content when you're involved in that. This is for that. You know, we sang the song. It's one of my favorite songs. It's the song that was sung at our wedding. It's a song I want to close with, and I'm not going to sing it. It's Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Be Thou My Vision, Be Thou My Treasure, O Lord of My Heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. That may not be the smoothest English, but it says, man, you're my all in all. And then it ends with riches I need not, 
nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Father, thank you for who you are. And Lord, on a Sunday morning, and we're here with the people of God, we're stirred by music, we're stirred by testimonies, we're stirred by action, and we're stirred by your word and your spirit. And Lord, may we go away from here firmly committed that the only treasure that matters in our life is the treasure that is your son, Jesus Christ. And may we bring our lives in conformity to that, Lord. May you be our vision. May we be people who are a church of contented people in Christ so that we can aggressively and with risk can go after spreading your glory around the world like the water covers the sea. And in the end of the day, Lord, that is all for your glory. And if there's some here, Lord, that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would provide contentment for them in yourself. Draw them to you. May they come to you in faith. And for those of us that are in the faith, Lord, May we be tenacious in putting to death the deeds of the flesh and may we go aggressively after contentment that comes from you. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. We have people up here. If you've God's working in your heart, if you don't know Christ, boy, that's the way to contentment. They would love to share that with you. If you have other issues or other needs, go out and see our, our local partners in College Park Church. May we be the church of Christ who's content and desires that the glory of God would cover the earth like the water covers the sea, and he'll do it through us. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.